Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. And today I'm delighted to be in conversation with the two authors of the recently published Metaphysical Animals, How Four Women Brought Philosophy Back to Life. I'm joined by Claire McCall. Hello, Claire. Hello, Miles. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Claire is a philosopher of mind, working mostly on perception, but with interests in emotion and action, as well as aspects of the metaphysics of mind and in topics relating to aesthetics. Now, most of her work is on perception of space and spatial properties. And she's particularly interested in uh, the perception of empty spaces, and um, but her interests have expanded somewhat uh, beyond that now. Um, in particular, she's trying to characterize the nature of our experience in a way that make it immune to skeptical redescription. It sounds fascinating. She <laughs> co-edited the collection uh, Perpetual, uh, Perceptual Ephemera, which was published in 2018 by OUP, as well as a wide range of essays on perception, human form and emotion. So it's great to have her with us. Uh, also joining us, in fact, they're sitting together, um, is uh, Rachel Wiseman. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Miles. Rachel works at the intersection of philosophy of mind, action and ethics, and has published uh, mainly on the work of Anscombe and Ludwig Wittgenstein. She co-edited The Anscomian Mind that was published with Routledge in, I think, 2021, last year, yeah, and is the author of the Routledge Philosophy Guidebook to Anscombe's Intention. Uh, again, that came out with Routledge, and that was published in 2016. And she's also published a wide variety of articles on Wittgenstein, privacy, ethics, and action. And together, they've also uh, co-authored a chapter on um, Murdoch and Anscombe in the recently published Madochian Mind, which came out just a couple of months ago. Now, Claire and Rachel lead the In Parenthesis Project, which is a multi-year research collaboration, which has been funded by the British Academy and the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And it focuses on the work of Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley, and Iris Murdoch. And alongside events and activities focusing on the individual philosophers that have been running over the last few years, including the wonderful Iris Murdoch Postcard Project, the major work of the project thus far has been the publication of Metaphysical Animals, which was published earlier this year with uh, Chateau Windus in the UK and with Doubleday in the US. So I'm delighted to have you both on the podcast to discuss the new book and indeed the uh, in parenthesis project more widely. Um, and you both must be delighted with how well it's been received, the huge amount of coverage it's received both here and in the US. But what I want to do really is go back to the beginning and talk about the first developments of the project, if that's okay. And I think that really sprang out of a growing friendship between the two of you, didn't it? Yeah, more or less, basically, yeah. Um, Rachel and I became friends in 2013, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And we, we both we finished our PhDs fairly recently and we were kind of quite, not fed up, but we were... <laughs> a, bit, a bit disillusioned, I suppose. Yeah, with, yeah. The, with the current state of academic philosophy. And we were wondering how can we make it more enlivening more creative particularly mm. and so we were having conversations about that um and we were also talking about being a woman in philosophy uh, yeah. quite a lot because mm -hmm. um i think when you're a younger student well when we were young undergraduate students we hadn't really noticed so much the absence of women philosophers i think that kind of consciousness raising that we've seen in academia hadn't really happened at that point and so we both felt a bit distance from the philosophy we were learning but didn't really know why and then when we became professors and we started to see loads of our really good women students feeling what we'd been feeling mm. and we started to think hmm actually <laughs> maybe it's because 
maybe it's to do with the fact that they're only reading work by men, that most of their professors are men, that the idea of philosophy and philosophical practice is so male. So we were kind of running those two conversations together, weren't we? We were. And then in 2013, I think it was, mm. again, or even 14, um, Mary Midgey published this famous letter in The Guardian uh, where she recounts the story about you know, herself and uh, the other three women being at Oxford during the war and the men were away. And she says, you know, finally, we were able to get our voices heard, our talents got the attention they deserved. Um, and so we read this letter and, you know, we were immediately struck by this empirical claim, really, that the men being away was somehow foundational to their developing as thinkers and, and mm -hmm. uh, philosophers. And so initially we thought when we set up in parenthesis, we thought, well, you know, let's find out about this, like who was away, uh, who, who was teaching them or whatever, but also let's just read the women together. Um, and we thought like the, the four of them together as friends, I mean, that's an incredible model for our women's students mm -hmm. as well. So, so it was we very open-ended. Yeah, honest. we set up some reading groups for our women's students. We started telling them about this story of women friends who became philosophers, yeah. which was kind of really transformative, I think, to a lot of their self-image. Mm -hmm. And then, amazingly, we discovered that Mary Midgley, the letter writer, was lived around the corner from us. Yeah. <laughs> so we went to see her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we went to see her. So that was 2015 mm. we started in September. Uh, we went with the uh, film crew, well, mm -hmm. yeah, someone with the camcorder, mm -hmm. <laughs> and we uh, interviewed Mary, and then we just started going back, didn't we? Mm -hmm. And Miles, I mean, you came to a number of the early events. Uh, I did, yeah. I don't know, did you come to that screening that we had in Amber Cinema? In, in Newcastle. In Newcastle. Yes, where, yeah, I was there for yeah. that, yeah. So, um, yeah, we had some very early exploratory workshops. Uh, what else did we do? Yeah, initially we just wanted to get the story out, I suppose, and, and try and find a way of, I mean, this is a kind of very Madokian idea, I suppose, but of a inserting a different picture of the philosopher mm -hmm. into the kind of the consciousness of the, our students in particular, but more generally. So we just wanted to keep telling this story of these four amazing young women against the background of the war coming together and mm. you know being friends and, and this idea that there was another model of doing philosophy collaboratively and all and that side of thing. but then of course as we were doing this we were reading their philosophy and we were going <laughs> oh my god because I'd, I'd just written the book about Anscombe and so I knew or I was writing the book about Anscombe so you know I knew Anscombe well and we'd read bits and pieces of the others but we didn't we hadn't read them together and suddenly sure. reading them together things started to fall into place mm -hmm. and I think you know you know I I'm not an ethicist my background is in philosophy of mind of course perception is my main area so I think you know I was reading the women from a not from an ethical perspective mm. to start like, just in terms of my own kind of hermeneutic practice if you like it's just I, I'm, I'm looking for different things and so I think that we were beginning to see certain kinds of connections that are not part of the standard story in terms mm. of the ethics and so although we had Mary's story as the background we were starting to maybe forge different sorts mm. of links or see different kinds of connections um, and of course all the time we were doing the archival work I mean I must say we had this starting grant from the British Academy which was about nine thousand pounds and my god that went so far. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. just wonderful, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think we had it for 
two or three years. It was incredible. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't think we followed the rules particularly. <laughs> <laughs> no, because we just, I mean, it just went on and on, didn't it? Yeah, that, it was amazing. Yeah, it really was. But we did so much of it. And I think, you know, some of the spin-off projects then that we did, just going back to Rachel's point about a different kind of model of philosophy, like the philosophy by postcard and the notes mm. from Biscuitin. Again, they were about inserting a different kind of picture of philosophical mm. practice mm -hmm. and how creative and expansive it mm -hmm. can be and conversational it can be as well. Mm. I think conversation was always something that informed the reading groups mm -hmm. and are trying to get to know the women, obviously, mm -hmm. us too. I think as well, like Miles, you'll know this from Murdoch's work, um, there's a kind of a, a, a kind of way of doing philosophy that's kind of dominant now and was then, which is very defensive and very closed. And the idea is that you commit yourself to as little as possible. You know, you make the tiniest move you can and then you defend it to the absolute hilt. And that's what a good philosophical practice looks like, is these very cautious, tiny moves that are then you know, surrounded by this impenetrable argument. And what we just loved about reading all the women's work was how open and generous it is. You know, they give you so much, you know, such a broad vision. They, they're so brave in what they mm. put out there, you know, stuff. It's not that, you know, it, it's undefended, like they've got reasons for it, but they're kind of opening things out. Um, giving you spaces that you can then move into as a philosopher so that as a kind of way of writing philosophy was so inspiring to us as well yeah the humanity of it and mm. of course like meeting Mary Midgley you know yeah. being with Mary yeah, um just in terms of a kind of particularism like she was just the model for us wasn't mm. she um you know, she was always saying, like, look at all the world problems there are. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> you know, what are you going to do about it? Stop complaining about philosophy. Yeah. Just get do, on with do it. Do something. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you met her again, Miles, at, at the, that particular that workshop we had in 2017. She was just a life force. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so so mentally acute and active and interested in what other people are doing as well. Mm -hmm. That seems to me the kind of the the, the driving spirit of the the in parenthesis project as well. It's both aspirational but it's also taking a lot of inspiration from what's gone in the, um, gone gone before well definitely i mean the women are the inspiration yeah. i mean yeah. all of them yeah uh, each one of them in different ways yeah mm. and it's just been such a joy yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah complete treat yeah so clearly then this is it's I suppose also at the beginning it must have seemed like a a huge task both in terms of the sheer amount of material out there and you said that obviously you were you know well versed in some of it but not in some um, you know not in all of it but it's also a kind of a, a huge task taking it on in terms of your careers at, at this point as well so there must have been some discussion I guess about how you set the boundaries of the project what you wanted to achieve and where you wanted to kind of be at the end of the project as well you would think Miles no. you would think that <laughs> nothing like that no I mean it was in, yeah I mean in terms of you know, it's all worked out very well, it? but it wasn't from a career perspective. I mean, I'm sure people thought it was very strange to be spending your research leave kind of climbing up the stairs of the nursing home and just well, wasn't a retirement home. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, I mean. Yeah, we I, were very unstrategic about yeah. it. And it, I, I think that's something we've both learned as well about. I think academia these days is so instrumentalized mm -hmm. and you're so much in this trap of thinking, every hour of your day has got to be maximally 
utilized to you know outputs and all this and and we were really we had to just let that go and do things like spend a day having tea with Mary Midgley you know it sounds much day. nicer than you know maximizing yeah, outputs yeah it was much nicer <laughs> gorgeous like, yeah. Wonderful thing too, but also it was a way of kind of thinking about your time and about what it is to develop as a thinker and an academic, mm -hmm. which just cuts against what you were meant to do. And of course, the intellectual benefits for us personally and hopefully for our students were absolutely enormous, mm -hmm. much bigger than anything we could have got mm -hmm. from kind of being more, um, you know, constrained and more professional I yeah, suppose I mean, about no particular end in mind other than a sort of hunch that this is a good thing mm -hmm. you know to do I mean for me in particular I it was a massive tangent for me mm. <laughs> so there was like a sort of five-year hiatus where I didn't really <laughs> publish anything to be honest really I did I did publish a few things but not yeah. you know but I think, yeah, I think one ought to be brave as an academic, yeah. especially once one has a permanent job. I mean, if you've got a permanent job, then, you know, you should, well, I don't know, not should, but you've got a certain kind of freedom, or we both felt then we had a certain kind of freedom to stop, kind of slightly step off that treadmill and be, and look up and, and you know, take inspiration from the kind of bravery of these women mm -hmm. and think, okay, let's do something a little bit off the beaten track and it's been I mean it's been so amazing for us like the Iris Murdoch project the postcard project you know working with the Irish post office and all these artists and you know you never know when you're going to have a conversation with somebody that's going to then feed some new piece of research or a new paper or you know that's going to enable you to supervise a PhD student better absolutely or, so it was all you know it was all our fun but also hopefully it's made us better philosophers maybe <laughs> I, I've definitely improved <laughs> I mean reading the work it, it's it certainly seems like it mm. and that's kind of a, a question about personal development and and also but the the enjoyment and the the joy quite frankly that obviously you both take in the project is, is wonderful to see and I think that really comes out of the book as well you can tell how you know quite frankly devoted you are to to the project <laughs> um so you've got got a background in Anscom and in Wittgenstein but there must have been so much reading that you had to undertake on the quartet just on their kind of um their primary material to actually kind of did you feel that to, you needed needed to kind of in, immerse yourself in that for a year or so to to work out exactly how you might want to plot their kind of intellectual development and trajectory well it's so it was so much reading I mean mm -hmm. I think that's all we did I mean of course it's a massive luxury to be able to say that but mm -hmm. um yeah I mean we wrote the book so we wrote we wrote it in 20 what well, started 2019 to 21 I suppose yeah, basically during the pandemic but during the pandemic so if you imagine that we started in 2015 and that was our main focus I suppose mm -hmm. but we didn't really start writing mm -hmm. until 2019 yeah really yeah so all of that time previous you know prior to that was reading and then of course we luckily had research leave yeah yeah so and of course as you know it has been very collaborative so in the sense that you know we've had lots of conversations with people that have real expertise yeah, in the people area, like you <laughs> including obviously in, in, in a reasonable number quite a large number of Murdoch scholars so you know you can't sort of piece this thing together Mm -hmm. on your own really mm -hmm. in a way I mean mm -hmm. we've benefited so much haven't we from conversation 
Yeah, and also, I mean, one of the amazing things about those reading groups that we set mm. up initially, Miles, like when we at the very, very beginning and we said, let's set up a, some, you know, women's reading groups at our universities and get get our women students reading these women. Mm. Loads of those are now our PhD students and they're writing master's thesis and stuff. So we benefited from those students as mm. well and, you know, the knowledge that they were able to share. So, yeah, we, we had to read all the primary stuff mm. and then all the amazing secondary literature and yeah it yeah. was and it just spiraled didn't it, it was because, epic uh, yeah. yeah yeah but it's and been it's, amazing like so yeah. enriching you know and then all the novels I hadn't read a single Iris Murdoch novel when we started Miles which yeah. I know will shock you well you know it's one of those things isn't it <laughs> getting around to it and now, now you've, read, I'm completely you've read a few now. yeah and just have them on circle you know I start at the beginning I read all the way through and then I go back to the the start again so I'm uh, yeah, deep in and it's great to, to hear you mention that about you know the inspiration that you you're passing on as you know almost in a, in a generational sense mm. that, that that Mary started off and then you're you're helping to pass on it's a, I think that that's the it's not insular and it's not just for you it's something that's a communitarian it's much much wider than that um, mm. which is which is I think one the one the you know why I think it's a, such a such fantastic work that you're doing there's obviously a huge amount of material out there on Murdoch, not just on the philosophy, of course, or on the fiction, but clearly you focus primarily on the, on the philosophy. But there's much less so, I would say, on Midgley, and especially on Philippa Foote, um, particularly in the in the biographical sense. Um, did that make it easier, or did you find yourself wading through a lot of um, the Murdoch biographies and other associated materials? Um, did you wish that there was other, other materials published on the on perhaps um, let the the less discussed members of the quartet? That's a really great mm. question, Miles, because I think we did have Slightly to panic. We <laughs> did have to sort of in a way, because there is so much on Murdoch and, and obviously she left in, you know, her correspondence, what, four thousand papers and the journals and yeah. and she herself is just so vibrant, yeah. isn't she? Like all the underlining and all the yeah. exclamation marks, like the energy on the page. We so we felt like we did have to somehow try and contain her, didn't mm. we? Because as you say, there is actually very little on Philippa Foote, mm -hmm. more in fact than we thought there was initially, but she herself was quite guarded and reserved and personal. So there was quite a lot. And as you know, she, you know, she burnt a lot of her journals, her letters and so on. Um, and we did feel at one point, I definitely felt that like her presence, almost physical presence was sort of standing in our way as mm -hmm. an absence right, because, yeah. because she had managed to kind of get rid of all of this material that we wished we had. So it was like <laughs> she, you know, she knew we or someone like us was coming. And so she <laughs> managed to sort of get in her way. <laughs> yeah. Away, yeah. So she was very present and we were very we were lucky we, to have Leslie. We, yeah, Leslie Brown at Oxford is really uh, important um, and very helpful. But we didn't want to tread on her mm. sort of privacy too much either. So getting the balance and just trying to find the detail. But we did in the end, I feel. Yeah. yeah but but yeah, Murdoch, we had to sort of contain. I think in the, one of the earlier drafts, there was less Murdoch because we had sort of contained her a bit. Mm. And then we were able to write more of her in yeah. but again you have to keep the balance don't you but actually having her and um elizabeth anscombe who again there's not much biographical or at the time anyway there wasn't much biographical stuff out there about her um 
And really what kind of existed about her was sort of anecdotes, often sort of slightly mean, slightly sexist anecdotes about how she dressed or what she looked like and her children and stuff. So we didn't want to build her character around these sort of unpleasant anecdotes. And there wasn't that much. I mean, there is a big archive of hers in UPenn, but it's largely divested of anything personal. So one of the tasks we had for kind of keeping Murdoch in check in a way was sort of building up Anscombe because in a way those two as personalities is such an amazing kind of powerful mm-hmm. encounter, isn't it? The two of them, they're Absolutely. so different, but they're, they're both kind of once in a generation people, you know, they're these complete individuals and, and so intellectually fierce and brave and, um like unconventional and to to find in the Murdoch diaries journals her talking about her relationship with Anscombe Mm. that was amazing and that kind of gave us a way of sort of creating Mm. an an opposite force to Murdoch yeah I I love the way you put that Rachel the once in a generation (laughs) women because they are and I think the intellectual excitement of coming across that material. I mean, mm-hmm. it will be known to many of the Murdoch scholars that material that, uh, that about Anscombe in the Murdoch diaries, but my goodness, like mm-hmm. the fact that that hasn't been written and that it hasn't been theorized in terms of their philosophies, mm-hmm. you know, sure. like that is not a mere, you know, the stuff in there is not just sort of gossip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they're talking about the tractators oh. and the, you know, the, and and death and evil and and the ju- and justice, like in this kind of hot box, these two incredible women. You're know, like, whoa! It's so, like you know, it'd be like if nobody had realised that you know Moore had influenced Russell or something. Yeah, I mean, it's serious yeah. stuff. Mm. And it was amazing for us because I think one of the things that people often express scepticism about is how you can put. Murdoch and Anscombe together as philosophers because Murdoch is a Platonist and Anscombe is a um an Aristotelian and Murdoch so believes in you know metaphysics and Anscombe is a Wittgensteinian so I think you know that there's a a kind of way in which their philosophies are constructed in the mainstream um literature which makes it seem sort of just weird to say oh these two women are, are connected philosophically so be being able to build the philosophical connections through this amazing friendship, um, mm-hmm. yeah. a meeting of minds in that kind of really mm-hmm. sort of real sense. Yeah, and going back to the character point, I think one of the things that, that the uh, Mur- the Murdoch Journal does is like really it challenges that caricature of Anscombe mm-hmm. that has been received, mm-hmm. you know, as this sort of aggressive sort of tramp. Mm. I mean, it's. She's so sensitive mm. and kind of buoyantly erudite and mm. just, I mean, she just seems like a completely different person mm. on the page of Murdoch's journals, mm. doesn't she? Yeah, that's really nice. So bohemian yeah. and... and yeah. yeah. And wonderful that all this material is now available and also that you are, you know, the first people to really deal with that as well in print. It's, it, it must have been a real thrill to be able to mm-hmm. you know, draw the, or draw that together. Yeah, and we should say that um, Dana and uh-huh. in the Murdoch archive was like an angel to us. <laughs> She's wonderful. She's amazing. Yeah, um, we couldn't have done that any of that without her. Yeah, definitely shout out to her if she was yeah. listening. She's incredible. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I was going to talk a little bit about archival work because that must have been, again, once you've done the read all, all the you know the, the original published material that is out there, then to go to Oxford and Kingston and elsewhere. What were some of the you know we've talked a little bit about Murdoch and Anscombe, the, that kind of discovery in, in Murdoch's journals. What else were kind of um, surprising discoveries that you made that perhaps you didn't expect to find, or was there a particular moment that you thought, yes, this is going to go into the book and really helps the narrative to progress? Mm. there was so much you can answer with a philosophical one one thing that was really just connecting to your last question was quite late in the day we we found the letter a set of letters from Philippa Foote to her mother during the war that had various details in them about where she was living and who she was seeing and sort of little stories and stuff that was a really amazing moment because like you say there was the what and, and had more details about the prisoner exchange of, of Michael Foot. Um, and that was really amazing because as you say, there, there isn't that much Philippa Foot um material out there. And so to have this little window with this set of sort of 10 letters of you know her on the page, that was really exciting, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say mm -hmm. kind of philosophically in terms of things that we discovered, but I think what we just didn't expect to find was the presence and the influence of a number of refugee scholars. Mm -hmm. um, so in particular, I'm thinking of Heinz Kassira, mm -hmm. who taught moral philosophy to Iris and Philippa and Mary, mm -hmm. um, particularly Kant, uh, Raymond Klebanski, who taught mm -hmm. Plato to Anscombe, so I think you know learning about these these people and and seeing traces of them in terms of the references that they wrote uh the tutor reports that they wrote like I think that was incredibly eye-opening mm -hmm. and uh yeah I mean this is this is only the beginning of the story about trying to track the legacy of these thinkers in in the four but also just in the history of analytic philosophy mid-century analytic philosophy in general mm -hmm. um that feels like a really a really untold tale and i was gonna have a question about that actually this mm -hmm. idea that they 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 were a, a, a such an important such important figures for the not not just the kind of the philosophical scene but also for the culture at oxford at the time as well and how important they were to who, who we might now you know know and and, and read um, think, and, know, yeah. and know more about them, but we just don't have as, as much detail about these these refugee scholars. I think what's quite important is that like before the war um, and before these the, the refugees are, are well, not so much arrived, but were given uh, tutoring because the men had gone away. Uh, there, you know, there was a fairly standard uh, Oxford sort of syllabus, I think. Mm -hmm. But these particular scholars, in particular, the Warburg scholars, um, the kind of ancient philosophy they were doing, the kind of research they were doing, wouldn't have had a place on the Oxford syllabus. It was too, if you like, advanced research. Mm. You know what Kassira was doing, what Klebanski was doing, what Lotyebowski were doing in the in the um, Warburg Institute. It, it 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 just wouldn't have had a place in the in the tutorial room at Oxford. So I think when these people started tutoring, just because there was an absence of men, the kind of level of scholarship mm. and the um, I, I would say it appears that the level of scholarship and the kind of, uh, I don't know, interpretive cruxes or whatever mm. they were using. Uh, would it's like have, a step change. It is like yeah. a step change and uh, would not have been seen prior. 
uh, to the war. And, and, you know, all of our women were, I mean, they just received it. <laughs> they were the first generation of scholars mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. or maybe slightly before Donald McKinnon, mm -hmm. for example, um, talks a lot about the influence of Ernst Cassirer on him. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, we can, they appear in our book, but we haven't done any scholarly research really on it, mm -hmm. particularly. And I think that's that would for me, I don't know if you agree, is sort of the next sort of big, yeah, not for us particularly, but for somebody, yeah, to lovely, really yeah. pull out that story, uh, you know, somebody with the right kind of classics background. Mm -hmm. Because it's another story, you know, when you think about that, the, that kind of Madokian idea of, of the importance of pictures and, mm. and images for orienting us towards the world, towards reality. You know, the, the kind of the, the image of these scholars arriving in Oxford, you know, it, with nothing, you know, having left professorial posts in, you know, the great cities of Europe and they're arriving as refugees and they're dependent on, you know, the handouts from, you know, the Oxford colleges or whatever, and they're scrabbling together bits of, um, you know, bits of teaching, and they're getting, you know, racist abuse, and they're being, you know, and yet in this, con and their homes and their families are being, you know, murdered, and and they're writing, you know, these great works mm. on ants, you know, in this sort of amazing moment and that image of you know the importance of scholarship and the, this idea that you know the, the, on a, the title of our book is metaphysical animals and, and part of that is this idea that you also find in C.S. Lewis that you know you don't just stop doing scholarship and doing philosophy and making art and doing mathematics because there's a, an asking question because there's a war because you can't like it's it's an absolutely fundamental aspect of human nature to pursue these tasks and you know the the Warburg scholars arrive as refugees you know with nothing and and there they are you know translating these great yeah. classic texts yeah. it's sort of such in a powerful image isn't it? and obviously Murdoch was really affected by that of course yeah yeah absolutely it sounds like you know that I mean you you've you sold this this book I think this is going to be <laughs> this is um maybe not for yourselves but maybe for, for someone out there I think this is absolutely an, an important book to be to be written mm -hmm. um but I, I want to suck a little bit back to the chronology of your book as well because you start in 1956 uh with uh Truman's degree Mm -hmm. And then you rewind to 1938 and then build back up to 1956, which I thought was a fascinating way to do it. And also, I think from a um, from a reader's point of view, it, it grabs you with this kind of major, major moment with 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 um, with Anscombe. Was that always the intention to kind of structure the book like that? Or was it part of the discussion with the publisher or was it just, you know, just between yourselves? Well, I think from, you know, as philosophers, one way of thinking about how you present a problem or a puzzle is, is you, you you start with either a dilemma or a thought experiment or an image or a question, or a question. And, and that was what we wanted the Truman case to raise the question mm -hmm. that the book would answer uh, so we wanted to set it up so that you know the reader would ask themselves uh, you know <laughs> was Truman right you know should he be honored or, you know so there was questions sort of before your mind before you even started reading the book Mm -hmm. um and you know that 
the idea of the book was that you would sort of kind of get the education that the women got, albeit very kind of quickly, and that we would sort of give all of the various different conceptual materials that you needed, that you need to answer the Truman question, or at least see it from Elizabeth's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we returned to it because we wanted to have like an M and D sort of structure to the book. Uh, so you have the opportunity to kind of look again with mm-hmm. all the kind of conceptual, and well, not moral progress, but depends what you think of concepts, but you know, conceptual progress that you've made, you have the opportunity to revisit the, the, the problem, the way yeah, you set it up. And we so, wanted to have as well, like one of the things when you read that scene the first time, we wanted to kind of really bring out the confusion mm. and the fact that people couldn't make sense of what she was saying. They couldn't see her clearly. They couldn't see Truman clearly. This sense of, you know, the fantasy, you know, that kind of Madochian idea that you've got the fact, you know, you've, you've got your eyes open, but you can't work out what's going on. It doesn't, it's not clear. And then when you return to the at the end, you can see it clearly and you can see who this woman is and, and what, what she's saying. And, and I think that's part of, in a way, like the whole idea of the book is that you have the drama, you know, you can read it as a story, you can read it as a kind of dramatic uh, story of these women moving through the world. Mm. But at the same time, it's also a philosophical argument. So yeah, this idea of having the philosophical question at the beginning and then the argument that gives yeah. you the answer, um, but doing that through the the structure of the narrative. Yeah, and I mean, I think one of the things that we both feel is that, you know, it's a kind of Wittgensteinian idea, isn't it? You kind of have to do the thinking for yourself. So we, we give you the conceptual materials, but hopefully the reader kind of gets to do the conceptual mm. work, the mm. thinking for themselves. So we never wanted to kind of adopt the position of the author. You know, we don't mm. really have an authorial the voice. Interpreter the interpreter, the yeah. So we don't like we haven't sort of we've tried to make clear and explain what the positions are, but we haven't sort of exactly interpreted them and told you how you should think about this yeah. or what's kind of going on mm-hmm. as such. We just sort of laid it there, <laughs> laid it out there, <laughs> the pieces, if you like, um, for yeah. the reader to put together. But I don't know. It's I such an it amazing moment that though. I mean, both kind of in the actual moment of, of Anskin making that move, but just again as a vision, you know, this young woman turning up to this room that's full of, you know, all the do- all the male dons and all the history of that moment. And this young woman is going to stand there and tell them all that they're, you know, they're sycophants mm. and they're celebrating a mass murderer. And, you know, they should stay in their beds because God might come down and punish them. I mean, it's such a kind of astonishing (laughs) vision of Mm -hmm. of intellectual bravery, whatever you think about the argument, that to kind of start with that moment, Mm -hmm. we just thought was such a, you know, a gimme. Mm -hmm. It is, absolutely. And I think that's (laughs) partly what makes the book very accessible as well. Because in rereading it over the last couple of weeks, I was thinking that this isn't just a book written for philosophers, although you probably could have gone down that route if you wanted to. Um, although, of course, philosophers have and indeed have gotten, gotten a lot out of it. But you really wanted to make this accessible. I mean, the I think it's the New York Times said this, this is the, the Metaphysical Animals is going to be a great summer read, um, which, I, you know, if you'd gone the other route, perhaps they wouldn't have done. But that was, <laughs> again, a, 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 a very much a conscious choice between the two of you to make it so accessible um, to to a a much wider audience. Yeah, we wanted to do that without skimping on the philosophy. I mean, there's like one way of dumbing it down is to make the philosophy kind of cartoon. Yeah. 
And so we really didn't want to do that. What we wanted, the way we wanted to make it accessible instead was to scaffold the philosophy with the narrative yeah. so that you can see the philosophy in all its intricacy at work in the lives of the women. And so you don't have to kind of always feel like, oh God, here's another bit of philosophy because you're actually seeing it unfolding in their lives. Exactly, yeah. And a lot of the material detail that we put down there in the social history, the elements that we've chosen are, as Rachel said, like they are scaffolding. So you're, mm. re you're reading uh, the narrative, but you're getting little bits of, yeah, just material culture that are going to prepare you for when you get a little hit of philosophy mm -hmm. you'll have already had some sort of background mm -hmm. um yeah so an example of that is stuff that we have in the second chapter just about saint hugh's garden uh you know there's little bits about you know what plants need to flourish and so on that is echoed a bit later but there's lots of things like that and i think one of the things that, i mean you'd agree with this rachel is that you know there's this idea that, that philosophy is this very uh, rarefied uh, kind of pursuit and we wanted to sort of challenge that and just sort of take away the frame if you like and just really embed the philosophy in mm. life and in sort mm. of happenings um, and you know that I mean our subtitle sort of speaks to that but I think you know that is part of the narrative form that we chose as well mm -hmm. to really sort of integrate it and not sort of siphon it off yeah some sort of philosophical silo mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so the form definitely speaks to that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and we wanted to have them kind of moving through the space, you know, the Oxford space, if you like, yeah. uh, as real people as, with lives, you know, as metaphysical animals, animals <laughs> asking questions and, yeah, but also, yeah, their relationships and, yeah, mm -hmm. just in, as, as, as three-dimensional as possible. Mm -hmm. That was, we always had that at the forefront mm. of our mind, I think. And I think Murdoch was really important for us yeah. in kind of thinking thinking about the book that way. But I mean, two things that of, of Murdoch's were really important from my perspective. Like one thing was um, the idea that, you know, you're an individual and you've only got a partial view on the world and you don't know, you know, we didn't want that perspective from nowhere where you see everything. We wanted this sense of being close to the ground and having these encounters with individuals who were also moving around mm -hmm. off stage. And so you can't have the whole picture at once because nobody does. So instead, you're kind of piecing it together as we do, as, as we mm -hmm. move through the world. And that sense of, you know, that Madokian idea that you have a different uh, notion of courage when you're 20 to when you're, you know, when you're 50 or whatever, that that idea that their whole, um, you know, they start off as 20 year olds and then they're 40 by the end of the book. So your mm. whole kind of cognitive architecture is changing and Murdoch's learning about love and friendship as she goes and you see those concepts deepen in their yeah. relationships as, as the book goes on. And the other, of course, is that, you know, really well-known, famous Murdoch <laughs> line that man is a creature who makes pictures of himself and then comes to, to resemble that picture. And the importance of concrete images of human life and the importance of who we put in the archive, who we raise up in yeah. our collective imaginations and how the images we have of ourselves and others orientate us in the world and that was also sort of really important in the way we structured the narrative yeah, yeah. how we structured and, and why we wrote the book <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this, this idea of the the uh, of you know the variety of human life but also the embedding of the philosophy in that mm -hmm. as you said in that three-dimensional life is 
is so important. Uh, one element that I've, I've been rereading um, the reviews that have come out in the last few months, one element that's caused uh, um, quite a lot of comment amongst quite a, a number of reviewers, particularly uh, reviewers who are philosophers, is this notion of um, the quartet as a particular school of philosophy, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and not just a, a group of friends. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, and whether you're, you know, if you're kind of, understanding of them developed over time as you're writing the book as a as a, as a kind of quasi school yeah i think quasi school is quite nice i think uh from our perspective obviously there's different um you know scholarly disagreement about this or scholarly debate so i know that uh, ben lipscomb uh, has a particular view about what unifies the women um i think from our perspective we we have tried to locate them in a tradition of well, you could call it analytic philosophy, mm. 20th century British philosophy, that's been kind of either suppressed or neglected or written out of history, however you want yeah. to, to frame it. And we think that once you locate them within that tradition, you can begin to see connections between them. So that's the way we think that you should do it, rather than looking for direct... I mean, they certainly had shared influence. So, that, you know... Wittgenstein, the refugee scholars, uh, certainly the particular interpretation of, of uh, Kant and um, Donald McKinnon. Do Aristotle, they got, yeah, Donald McKinnon, um, Elizabeth's time at Blackfriars, the just war tradition. Yeah. Yeah, there's obviously, you and can. And like Mary says, there's a kind of common enemy. Common enemy, hair, hair. Yeah. So you can draw kind of direct comparisons that way, sort of join the dots type thing. But we think a better way to do it is to put them in this much wider intellectual background mm -hmm. where you have figures like H.W.B. Joseph, A.D. Lindsay, you know, um, a particular even kind of British so socialism and, you Dorothy know, Emmett. Dorothy Emmett, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, when you, there's numerous figures and when you look at that tradition and you place them within that, even go back to the late 19th century, mm. um, then different sort of connections light up and that's we discovered mm -hmm. or we think is that that is the way to do it and it's it, it's a it's a much more provocative and sort of disruptive in mm -hmm. fact way to do it because you have to bring back all of these you have to sort of do a bit more excavating don't mm -hmm. you and I think yeah I, I think just on the school thing as well mm -hmm. I mean, part of what's happening when people are arguing about that is, is it's a kind of political argument mm -hmm. about, um, you know, what what we're going to accept is the way we structure the narrative of 20th century philosophy. Sometimes it's an argument, you know, coming from people who are, are like mega fans of one of the women and think that some of the others are not so important. So they don't like the idea of them being in a school together or maybe they think that they belong in a different, you know, one of them belongs in a different school. So it's it disrupts their way of thinking about the narrative to put them together. So a lot of it is kind of that sort of politics, if you like, mm -hmm. I think. And, you know, so we have a kind of conciliatory and a, and a more ag aggressive <laughs> <laughs> answer to the question. I mean, Claire's is a very nice way of thinking about it. And in a way, you know, if you want to say they're a school at the end of all that, you know, you say can. what you want as long as you know the facts. But I, yeah. I suppose... If if I wanted to be a bit a bit stronger about it, I might say, you know, look, if you look at anything that's got been called a school, you know, if mm. you look at the ordinary language philosophers, if you look at the logical positivists, if you look at the idealists, they disagree about loads and loads of stuff. If you look at them up close, you know, that's you're right. not fine. You know, they ain't sign up to the 39 articles like they they're 
you can group them together because they help to structure a narrative about the kinds of conversations that are happening. And again, like the image of a school of women philosophers is, is a really powerful one and also really important. I mean, one of the stories that kind of always turns my blood cold is, is that of, of Susan Stebbing, who was an incredibly important philosopher in her own time. You know, she was really foundational in beginning analytic philosophy and the founding the journal analysis. She was on the radio. She was a public figure. She was a professor at Cambridge. No, go, yeah. Go, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. Sorry. Oh, in London. London sorry, yeah, professor yeah, in London. You know, she was monumental. And within a few years of her death, all her books were out of print and nobody knew, knows who she was. Now, she's getting a revival now. But it's very easy for figures to fall out of the, the narrative, the dominant mm. narrative, if you like. Mm. And so there is a certain importance, and maybe this is why people get, you know, want to argue about it, about putting these women as a group together, because it gives them a certain kind of gravity. It and it makes them harder to push out the way, you know, if they're, <laughs> they're glued in together. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it also encourages what we think is, is an amazing thing to read them together, because if you read them together, you can't help but enrich your understanding of the others. And so mm -hmm. if calling them a school encourages people to read them together, then. You know. Yeah, as a, a kind of a, as a, a, an active kind of provocation to people that maybe not have not engaged with them previously mm -hmm. yeah. no, I think that's really nice I think that's also something that um suggests to me that it's something that you're what you're doing in in this book is quite different and indeed I think it probably is complementary as well to um Ben Lipscomb's The Women Are Up To Something which we mentioned briefly which came out last year that also focuses on the quartet I think there are obviously some similarities between the books but clearly you've both got kind of a different aims in mind of what you want to do and I think both of them together form this really kind of um, a great way in of looking at, at the, the quartet and indeed figures beyond them in mid 20th century philosophy and mm -hmm. um, making sure that these women are now firmly entrenched, entrenched is probably the wrong word, um, but firmly in people's minds when they're thinking about this, the, um, you know, the kind of the, the, um, the culture of philosophy in, in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that seems to have happened. I mean, between the time that we started in parenthesis and now, it seems to be almost not old hat that before were you know at Oxford during World War II but it, it seems yeah, to be just taken for out, granted right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's a yeah that's pretty good yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wonder has it changed your perception of philosophy in the mid-20th century you know undertaking this project so since say 2013 2014 oh my god yeah, that's totally. massive yeah I mean I mean yeah what? I mean this how can even begin to so Sorry, it's a big well, question. Well, no, I suppose one of the things <laughs> we, we, we had always puzzled over the fact that, you know, for some reason, World War II didn't seem to make much of an impact on philosophy, it had seemed to us, which is silly now looking back on it, but it was sort of like, well, you know, the men went away or they didn't go away, didn't even think about it. Yeah. It was like there was no sort of rupture or breach at all, it seemed. Yeah. But that's just looking, completely false. Yeah. I mean, even just thinking about the work of ordinary language philosophers like uh, Gilbert Ryle and Austin. I mean, there's a new, there's going to be um, an Austin biography coming out in the next year or two by Mark Rowe. And really, the influence of the Second World War mm. on ordinary language philosophy in Austin is huge. Yeah. You know, so that story hasn't been told yet. And I do, I do wonder, I mean, now I, might, I might go off, sometimes I go a bit off piece. No, go for it. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, I do wonder if, 
to some extent the the trauma mm. of the war sort of found its way in somehow to aspects of the practice I mean this is yeah I am going off piece but I do wonder if you know part you know if that has been something that philosophy has had to deal with in some mm. encoded way or I don't mm. I don't quite know but anyway so I think that is now part of the conversation in terms of all of those figures mm. um I mean Gilbert Ryle I find particularly enigmatic as well yeah I mean yeah I, I absolutely agree with that I think the other thing that we were really well I put anyway was really ignorant about was the history of women's education mm-hmm. um and I, I don't know I had this kind of vague idea that you know women had been going to university for a good while and whatever and there were the women's colleges stuff but I, yeah. I think I hadn't really kind of got my head around like how recently it was that women were allowed into the male space of the university mm-hmm and how much resistance there was to that. And the kind of, the material reality of being a woman philosopher in the early 20th century and how difficult that was and how many barriers there were. And and having our women arrive, you know, just in the late 1930s as, you know, really educated women who were, you know were, had the vote and who kind of had this sense that it was perfectly reasonable thing for them to be there and the women that they were teaching them had had to fight so hard and for them it was still so fresh so you know fresh. that it was you know that on the first day when Mary when Iris and um originally arrive at university they're told you know the women are still on probation you've got to be careful how you behave and mm. that filling in the story of some of those women academics who had kind of you know staked the place and made the context in which our women could then come through that was really powerful for me I think yeah Mm -hmm. I agree Uh, we interviewed Joyce Reynolds for the book who was a contemporary of our women as well she's a classicist at Cambridge Mm -hmm. um so she supervised Mary Beard for example she's extremely influential uh, but she talked about, you know, seeing her mother cry, having voted, I think, in mm. 1928, the flapper vote and uh, mm. sort of not really understanding why she was crying. Mm. You know, I think Midgley in particular also sort of just took it for granted that, you know, women had been liberated mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think you're right, like getting to grips and having some kind of understanding of the difficulties, mm-hmm. the severe difficulty. I mean, we thought. I mean, we were complaining about women in philosophy in the 21st century. Yeah, we knew nothing. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, and obviously the refugees, which we've spoken about already. So I, I think, yeah, just getting uh, getting to, to be knowledgeable about the recent history of our, our subject in its detail and, mm. and, and being able then to break through the kind of standard narrative that you have where these figures like Austin and Wittgenstein and Ryle you know completely dominate the the structure of the conversation and, and suddenly finding this other conversation that was happening and, mm-hmm. and yeah very and much and it must have surprised you that nobody kind of thought about this before I guess that it's taken so long for this story to be told in a way it's surprising in a way it's not at all surprising because analytic philosophy is basically ahistorical Mm-hmm. you know and so you do get the same arguments being recycled every 15 years because mm-hmm. no one's particularly interested yeah in, in the history you know yeah. so I think it is very ahistorical I think for a certain kind of thinker like me for example I find that really difficult because 
I do think ideas have a, their own kind of social history. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so in a way, I don't find it remotely surprising. Would you agree with that? Well, I mean, one thing is Mary had been kind of telling yeah, the story in all sorts also... of places for kind of a, a good long number of years, but yeah. nobody's been picking up on it. And that's partly, you know, to do with Mary's place in the story, that she, because she left Oxford in the 1950s um, and she decided that she wanted to, you know, raise a family and her husband mm. was a philosopher, but she... You know, she raised a family and she did uh, writing for magazines and um, journalism and book reviews and that rather than writing philosophy papers until the 70s. So she sort of has a, a quite a marginal place within sort of the, the kind of philosophical world that I that um, Elizabeth Anscombe anyway is central to, you know, Mary's seen as a sort of public philosopher in some way, even though, you know, she kind of started animal. <laughs> so she's so she's been so important, but she I suppose she's seen as a bit more, you know, not as fiercely intellectual as Anscombe mm -hmm. is, I suppose, the sort of thing that people might say about her. And so I think the fact that it was her, her saying it meant that it was it was sort of people it wasn't kind of getting through to people. yes I mean there probably is some amount of intellectual snobbery mm -hmm. behind mm. it as well you know she yeah. was at Newcastle University mm. and as you said you know she only started writing really her first book was published in 259 mm -hmm. so there's probably an element of that that she's easier somehow to dismiss although she's not at all easy to mm -hmm. dismiss yeah mm. I think the other thing is that it's only I mean, I don't know what it's like in your discipline, Miles, but in philosophy, it feels like we've we've we're very late at, at coming to the realization that there weren't any women philosophers. <laughs> I feel like history, you know, started thinking about you know women's history, women's studies, like where are all the women in history? Yeah. Women historians started telling stories about. It, it feels like other disciplines in the in the arts were much more aware of that as a thing than philosophy was and really it's only in the last what six seven eight years that philosophers mm -hmm. have kind of gone oh actually maybe we should try and you know diversify our curriculum yeah. Yeah. try and I would, I would agree with you yeah definitely yeah I mean the conversation only started in about 2007 with the Ray Langton and Sally Haslanger mm. a couple of papers and Jenny Saul I think and then there was a report in 2010 about Mm -hmm. uh, the status of women in the profession so it's very I mean in a way that's quite long ago now right it, things have changed very very quickly and mm -hmm. the conversation has moved on a lot um in the space of that 12 years but it is very recent yeah yeah, yeah. you know I mean that's how we sort of partly got into this because we realized that our you know our consciousness had been raised but sort of very late yeah. <laughs> in a way sort of after our PhDs almost mm -hmm. yeah but ho hopefully you know now you know um philosophy curricula in the uk and in, and hopefully um more widely a bit is much more inclusive and much more expansive um and in, in no small part thanks to um to what you're both doing so where do you and indeed the in parenthesis project go next i guess um naturally there's obviously you know you've alluded to so many other avenues of um, that you could you know you could work on much more work to be done and obviously you know we've got the quartet conference coming up next year in durham Mm -hmm. um but will we get more material from both of you on the on the four philosophers or are you going to be taking on new projects what's the uh what's the future look like Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well we're still working on that but I suppose I think you know what one of the things we think do you know if you agree mm -hmm. with me Rachel what you're going to say to this but I mean when you read the women together okay you get like 
a very coherent, integrated metaphysics, you know, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and kind of social theory in a way, mm -hmm. politics. So we have this philosophical picture and scheme. And I suppose we'd kind of like to do something with that mm -hmm. in the contemporary context. Okay. Um, so that would be a sort of Midgleyan, kind of Murdochian, and Scomian actually mm -hmm. sort of project, isn't mm -hmm. it? To to try and apply this philosophy. Yeah, to try to, and use it to sort of intervene in the public political world. Wow. Yeah, because I mean, it's such a powerful picture. I mean, Claire will, will talk, will say, always says about this, but you know, if you're a philosopher of perception working there, a philosopher of action, you're working with paradigms that you really can do very little with. You know, if, you, if you've got a kind of view of that's sort of broadly physicalist, say, or if you've got a sort of, you know, naive realist theory of perceptions, like you're sort of trapped in that. And you, it's very hard to link it all together. Whereas with these women, we've got this incredibly powerful integrated philosophy of action, perception and ethics that's situated in a social political sphere that has a really robust conception of human nature mm -hmm. at the heart of it. That's historically, you know, that, that takes account of the historical nature of a human individual moving. I mean, it's so, it's so powerful. It's so powerful and it's so freeing because once you have it, you can just move around. Mm -hmm. the world. And it's so descriptive. So mm. it's, it's accessible because it's recognizable. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there's a lot of bad. I don't know if you've noticed, Mars, but there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world at the moment. <laughs> I look out the window, I case, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, we'd like to, you know, try yeah. and try and look at some of it using this amazingly powerful material. That, framework that we've got we also just we've discovered how amazing it is to write with another person oh yeah haven't nice. we? Yeah. yeah and to do philosophy together so although we're both still doing our own little individual papers I think mm. um it's much, we, we're much we find it much easier now to write stuff together mm -hmm. yeah the intellectual so, relationship will endure no doubt hopefully yes. yeah and hopefully yeah. the personal one as well <laughs> I'm sure it will it's been, it's, been an, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to have you on today. And obviously we're, we're coming just towards the end of the podcast. But what I generally ask guests to do is to recommend a reading from Murdoch. Uh, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to do that today because hopefully most people that have uh, listening to this have, have listened to podcasts in the past and have picked up some uh, some uh, philosophical work by Murdoch. But instead, could you recommend the best place to start with Anscombe, Foot and Midgley for those who have read your book or are going to read your book now that they've listened to the podcast and want to get to grips with the original material by them? Mm -hmm. Where should they start? Foot and Midgley is easy. Yes. Um, so for Philippa Foot, her book, Natural Goodness, which came out with OUP in 2000, maybe. Yeah. So right towards the end of her life when she was in, eight, in her 80s. And it's, it's the kind of the summary of everything that she came to, to know and think about natural goodness, about human life and ethics. And it's very, very slim, isn't it? It's mm. a lovely, slim book and it's so elegant and mm. it's gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Mary as well, another book right from the end of her life. Yeah, so Surely, yeah. yeah. Um, so just before Mary's 99th birthday, her last book was published. It's called What is Philosophy For? And again, it's a lovely, slim volume. And that's her manifesto, I suppose, mm -hmm. and her plea for the importance of philosophy in human life. 
So those are those are the easy ones. Ants comes the ants it's comes so, a bit harder because yeah. um her kind of her most sort of important text is a book called Intention, which is um public which she wrote in the 1950s, which is an account of human action. But it's very much a philosopher's book, I would say. <laughs> um, I tried and failed yeah. with intention. Um, so I would start with some of her papers. And I think Mr. Truman's degree actually is mm -hmm. a so so she published in the 1950s, the mid-1950s. There's a little cluster of things that she wrote that were all motivated by Mr. Truman's degree. So mm. there's Mr. Truman's degree itself, which is a pamphlet, you can find it online. Um, which is the text of her speech that she gave in convocation, so that, that, that our book, where she protested Truman being awarded the honorary degree. And that um, then got her thinking about human action. So one of the kind of results of that, if you like, is this book Intention. But then a couple of years later, this uh, very, very famous paper, Modern Moral Philosophy. So I would, I, read, I would read Mr. Truman's yes, very Modern Moral Philosophy. And can I make, a, make the suggestion that maybe... Uh, you could read Rachel's guidebook to Anscombe's <laughs> intention. You could, absolutely. Because intention is just so exciting, isn't mm. it? I mean, it, it, it's obviously a masterpiece, but it's just... It is I mean, astonishing. It's, it is, it, it, yeah. It is it, yeah. So I think I would encourage people maybe to read intention with Rachel's guidebook. Sorry, Rachel. <laughs> um, Good idea. <laughs> yes. And she does have a lovely... Um, introductory section on the kind of style and kind of method of intention and I think that does unlock it quite a mm -hmm. bit we talk about voices the kind of Wittgensteinian mm. elements yeah in a way it's a very easy book because it's completely non-technical there's no philosophically technical material in it there's no she doesn't talk about other philosophers there's no knowledge presupposed but uh, the thing that's difficult about it is you can't work out what why she's saying the things that she's saying it's a bit like trying to read the philosophical investigations you're sort of going oh this is either completely banal or mm -hmm. insane and I can't tell yeah. which one so it's a it's a question of getting your eye in getting what, your eye in. what yeah. she's up to and once you've got that then it's just a beautiful yeah but you are sort of thrown book. back on yourself because it is descriptive mm -hmm. you know you are supposed to reckon or you you do recognize the description of human action that mm -hmm. she's giving um because it's i don't want to say true but it is. <laughs> so it, it that's hard as well mm. yeah so anyway rachel's book I would rachel's say. book will help us to get our eye in yeah. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you both so much for coming on. I've, I've so enjoyed our, our, our uh, conversation today, and I'm, I'm sure That's our fair. listeners will as well. It's been um, been a real pleasure. So thank you. Thanks, thanks Miles. Miles. <laughs> well, thank you both. <laughs> and obviously, and thanks to our listeners for listening. <laughs>